this is um, a lecture on public choice, uh, which is basically just applying economic principles to politics. That's the, the way people usually describe it. And you've heard a little bit about it already at various points throughout the last half day, including this morning and last night. Um, <clears throat> but I just want to give you some of the, the basic insights that public choice theory has provided over time. Um, public choice as a field started in 1962 with uh, James Buchanan and Gordon Tullock, the two people standing in the field right there. Uh, they wrote a book called the, T the Calculus of Consent, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that um, as we go. Um, but they, they basically started this field, and, and James Buchanan eventually received the Nobel Prize in Economics for his work in public choice. Okay, now what they did was, like I said, they applied economic principles to politics. And mo primarily the important thing that they did was to say, all right, we are economists. We believe people are rational, rationally self-interested. And so the analysis of politics up until 1962 was mostly um, assuming benevolence on the part of politicians. So what they did was to revolutionize the analysis of politics by assuming instead of benevolence, rationally, rational self-interest. Okay, so that's the main insight. All right, now um, I want to step back uh, just one step and, and ask you guys, what, are, what do we have governments for usually? What's the idea? Why do we have government in the first place? Yeah, to provide public goods, right? To provide public goods. All right. So, so the way we usually talk about public goods is we um, we divide things up into products or goods that are rivalrous in consumption and then excludable. So, what that means is basically um, things that are that I can consume without you, or things that I consume and then they're basically gone. I use them up in the process of consuming them. Are considered high in rivalry. Okay, so if I use something and I'm using it up in the process of consuming it, then that's really rivalrous. Something that's not rivalrous would be something that if I use it, there's still left en enough left for you to also have some, okay, after I consumed it. Excludability is whether or not we can exclude people that didn't pay from consumption, okay? So private goods are on top here where they're highly excludable and highly rivalrous. And an example of a public good is a Tootsie Roll, right? Tootsie Roll is a really good example of a private good because it's definitely rivalrous. If I eat one, there's one less in the world, right? So my eating a Tootsie Roll keeps you from consuming it. Same as a bagel, right? You're eating that bagel right now, that means I can't have it. No, I'm all right, thank you. <laughs> okay, so that's a private good. Also, it is excludable, right? Because people that don't pay don't get Tootsie Rolls, unless it's Halloween or something. Um, yeah, people that don't pay don't get Tootsie Rolls. Somebody has to pay. Okay, so Tootsie Rolls are a really good example of, pri of a private good. All right, now the next category is uh, common pool resources. Common resources are rivalrous in consumption, but not excludable. Okay, so best example is, this is from Eleanor Ostrom's work again, fish. Okay, so if you think about the oceans, right, there's tons of fish. They are rivalrous in consumption. If I overfish, there's left, less fish left for you, right? But fish or the oceans as a, as, a, as a space are not very excludable. It's hard to keep people out. Okay, so that's what a, a common pool good is. Okay. And then club goods. Club goods are goods that are um, not very rivalrous, but excludable. Okay, so a pool is a good example because, well, you can build a fence around the pool, make it excludable, right? And then it's not very rivalrous in consumption because, well, my being there doesn't necessarily preclude you from being there, right? Now, at some level, at, at some level of consumption, those become rivalrous too, right? But you can imagine that there could be two people at a pool without it being a big deal, especially if, if it's a nice pool like this one, right? So pools are a good example of a club good. Other examples are like golf clubs and stuff like that. Anything that's a club, essentially, right? Okay, and then, and then the, the public goods, which is the ones that we are wanting the government to provide, are things like the military, right? Where they're not rivalrous. The fact that the American military protects me doesn't make it less likely that you're also protected by it, right? My, the protection that I receive doesn't reduce the protection that you can receive. And it's not excludable because if you live in the United States, you are protected by the American military whether you pay taxes or not, right? So 
Um, it's hard to exclude people from the protection if the protection applies to a large geographic area. Right? The only way um, you could exclude them is by kicking them out of the geographic area that's protected, and that would be kind of difficult. Right? So that's why we ask people to pay taxes for provision of military services and stuff like that. Because, well, taxes are forced payment. Right? If people actually had a choice, they might not pay, but they would still receive the protection. Okay? So with public goods, we get what's called a free rider problem. People that aren't paying will still receive the service, and that's why we think they should be provided by governments. Okay? The other three types of goods actually can be provided privately, but with public goods, we have a hard time explaining how that might work. Okay, because of the excludability issue, mostly. Okay. All right, so that's the idea behind why we should have government. Here's another example of a, of a public good. And, right, roads, you said that already. Right. Okay, so <clears throat> now that's all good, right? The fact that the government should provide public goods is all right if we assume that the government has our own, be our own best interest at its core, right? At, uh, if the government really wants to achieve what is in the citizen's interest, then we are all right with them providing the public goods because we know they'll do a good job, right? They won't overproduce or overpredict demand like Tom was talking about yesterday, right? If they really care about what we want, then they'll figure out where our demand curve is and they won't overproduce. That would be perfect, right? They could be like Mother Teresa and actually try to figure out what it is that the people want that she's working for. And then we'd be all right with that. Now, um, the problem is that, well, like Buchanan and Tulloch said, governments aren't necessarily angels. Instead, they're rationally self-interested, just like you and I are, right? Politicians are just as human as everybody else. They don't necessarily care about the people that they don't know, and they care very little about the people they know. They care mostly about themselves, right? Just like everybody else. And this isn't a new insight or anything that Buchanan and Tulloch had. This is old, right? The Founding Fathers knew it. So right here, this is from Federalist 10, complaints are everywhere heard from our most considerate and virtuous citizens that the public good is disregarded in the conflicts of rival parties and that measures are too often decided not according to the rules of justice and the rights of the minor party, but by the superior force of an interested and overbearing majority. Okay? It's no longer about what's best for the country, but it's, well, whatever the majority wants is what we get, and that's not necessarily in everybody's interest. Okay? So governments aren't really, well, benevolent, okay? Just like everybody else, they're not angels. They're, they're little devils, okay? They're doing whatever is in their own interest. And therefore, we don't necessarily get public goods provided in the way we want them provided, okay? Now, what do we do about that? What did the Founding Fathers decide to do about that to make it work better? Checks and balances, yeah, so what's all part of that? If you're like have a legislation system and the three powers are designed to check and balance each other. Yeah, so you have a bicameral legislature and then three different parts of the government that are supposed to check each other, that's right. And then there's one big part over top of that, which is voters, right? And voters are supposed to check government as well. Um, you already kind of know that, you know, even though it's set up as checks and balances, checks and balances aren't working so well anymore, right? It seems like they're all kind of pushing in the same direction, which is away from what people want, right? That's why we have lots of protesters and stuff from all sides of the political spectrum, right? Everybody's really frustrated because it seems like even though we have checks and balances, the government really isn't doing what we want them to do. So, all right. Now, if that's true, then the only thing that we have left is voters as a check on the political process. Voters as a check on the political process. All right. Now, well, how good are voters at at checking the political process. Not very good. Yeah, that's true. They're not very good. And here are some reasons why they're not very good. Oh, this is Buchanan and Tulloch, the calculus of consent. Um, all right. First one is what we call rational ignorance. This is one of the main insights of public choice theory. Okay? Basically, the idea is voters are ignorant. They don't really know what's going on in the world. They don't really know the politicians that they're electing. And therefore, we get bad outcomes. Okay, so let me ask you, just by show of hand, how many of you know the name of your governor in the state? Okay, everybody mostly. Okay. How many know the names of the two congressional representatives that you have for your state? One. Both names? Senators. Senators, yeah, sorry. Senators. 
Okay, one hand. One, two, three. All right, it's getting worse. All right. <laughs> How many can name their state senators? Raise your hand. All right, one person left standing. Very good. All right, so we go down very quickly, right? And you see, you don't have to be worried about that. That's not, that's not unusual. Okay, you see right here, it's actually really, really normal. This is a survey of just the general population and, you know, how many of them can name these different political facts. Okay, so how many know that the president's term is four years? 94%, not bad, right? But then down here, how, how many can name one of their state senators? 28%, not very good at all, right? All right, they didn't ask for two, they asked for one. So you may have been able to do that too, right? But it's, ignorance is prevalent. Ignorance about the political process and about who your representatives actually are is very prevalent, okay? It's not something unusual. So you guys are a highly educated crowd and you don't know this stuff, right? Now imagine less, less well-educated people, it's even worse, right? You're supposed to learn this, right? Some people don't, aren't expected to learn anything. So but they don't know it either. No one really knows anything. Now, if that's true, or, well, it is true, then how effective can we be as voters in checking politicians and what they're doing? How effective can we be if we don't even know their names? Not very, Not very right? Not very. It's kind of a silly question. Yeah, so if we're really so ignorant about the political process, then, well, it's hard to actually do anything, check anything, make sure that politicians are keeping their word, right? And we see that all the time. They don't have to keep their word because, well, it doesn't matter, right? Charlie Rangel, even though he's the most corrupt person in Congress, gets away with being reprimanded by his, uh, by his peers, and then he gets reelected, right? He gets reelected. Okay, so um, that's no good. Well, but even if we assumed that everybody was perfectly informed, even if we assumed everybody was perfectly informed, knew all of the politicians that represent them, and knew all of the facts about the political process that you have to know to actually make an informed choice. Even then, there would still be a problem. And this is Brian Kaplan's idea. Okay, now the problem is no longer rational ignorance because we're no longer ignorant. Now it's rational irrationality, what Kaplan calls rational irrationality. Rational irrationality means you are informed, you're making an informed choice, and yet your choice is biased. You're not making an objective assessment of the world, okay, for some reason. Well, the reason is that the cost of making biased choices is really, really low in the political process. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute. But basically what Kaplan says is, look, we can look at what people believe and compare it to what experts believe, and we see a huge difference, okay? So he actually looked at economists versus the public, and he finds that the public tends to be biased they tend to have beliefs or hold beliefs about the economy that economists would not hold. Okay. And the four big ones that he finds are make work bias, first of all. People believe way too often that it's all about creating jobs. Okay. They emphasize too much that, um, for example, increasing technological progress reduces the number of jobs that are around. Okay. Now, as economists, you guys know, that that's not true, right? If we improve our efficiency in one sector of the economy, that just means people spend less money on those goods, and then that money is freed up, and we can spend it on other things, and new jobs are created somewhere else. But it turns out that in the public, people don't really, well, hold this belief. People don't really agree with this assessment. People think that, well, those jobs are gone. And so what we really should be doing is making it so that more people can work in manufacturing, okay? So that's one big bias that the public holds compared to economists. Another one is the anti-foreign bias, and, and Alex just gave you a whole lecture on that. Okay, it turns out immigration is not really all that bad. In fact, it's slightly positive, actually. Marginally positive influence on the economy from immigration. Okay, and if you're looking at different classes in society, then immigration is, is not just slightly um, good for them, but actually really, really good. If you're a middle-class person, having a lot of really low-skilled immigrants actually makes your life a lot better. Why? Why would I say that? What do the low-skilled immigrants do for you? They do all the jobs that you don't want to do. Yeah, they do all the jobs that you don't want to do, right? They do all the jobs that you don't want to do. They watch your kids when you really don't want to watch your kids, <laughs> right? They cut your yard when it's a pain in the butt to mow your grass. I don't know if you've ever tried. I tried last week and it was a pain, okay? Um, 
while they do all these different things that we really don't want to do, and they do it for so cheap that we don't have to even have to think about doing it ourselves, right? They'll cut your grass for 10 bucks. Man, that's so cheap. I can sit on the deck and watch them do it while they're doing it. <laughs> right? That's almost amusing. No, that's horrible. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> so actually, if you're a middle-class person, immigration is actually a good thing for you, usually. Okay? It makes you wealthier than you otherwise would be because it allows you to outsource a bunch of stuff and then specialize on what you're good at. And we know that's, that's a good thing for the economy, right? If we specialize in what we're good at, comparative advantage, if you know what that is. Okay. Uh, the third bias is pessimistic bias. People are way too pessimistic, it turns out, about their economic prospects. Okay, so if we look back 100 years, people lived in pretty dire circumstances compared to the way we live today, right? Most people lived in pretty dire circumstances compared to the way we live today. And if they had only known that the economy was going to be the way it is today, that we would have iPhones, that we would sit here on a Saturday morning and talk to each other about ideas, right, instead of being out on the field and harvesting the last crop before the winter, right, they would have thought that's insane, that's impossible, it would never happen, right, a hundred years ago. So it turns out people are, people are too pessimistic all the time. In fact, we are probably all too pessimistic about the future right now. Economic prosperity is something that has historically increased all of the time. There aren't any big dips down or you know, something like that. So we shouldn't be so pessimistic. We should actually expect to be wealthier over time. And then we shouldn't worry so much about the recent recession, right? We shouldn't try to do anything about it. We should just kind of forget about it and move on, right? So it turns out the public is way too pessimistic about economic opportunities going forward. Okay, and then the last bias is anti-market bias. Well, yeah. It's easy to say that if you're an economist, right? Economists like markets, so... Obviously, everybody else must be wrong. They must be biased if they don't like markets, right? Now, well, we tend to think that economists actually know something about markets, right? They don't, make just, they don't just make stuff up. They actually know what they're talking about. So if you think that experts have the right kind of knowledge, then you would agree that economists probably are right about markets working well. And then you should actually think that markets are a good thing most of the time. You should understand the benefits of competition. Okay, and why it checks people's, well, bad, bad tendencies. Okay. But the public doesn't. The public actually underestimates the, the value of markets and competition. Okay, so now, if Brian Kaplan is right and people are biased in this way, then even if we're perfectly informed, voting will not lead to good outcomes. Let me say that again. Even if we're perfectly informed, which is the thing that people mostly complain about when it comes to voting, right? Voters just don't know what they're doing because they're not well informed. Even if we were perfectly informed, because of these biases, we will make, make bad policy choices. We will restrict immigration. We will um, regulate markets. We will um, try to create jobs where there aren't any, right? Worry about job creation. And we will be too pessimistic about the prospects of economic growth. So we will make bad policy choices, not because we're not well informed, but because we're biased. Okay. So <clears throat> now, let's assume that away, too. Let's assume people are not irrational, and let's assume people are not ignorant. Okay. Then voting should work, right? Voting should work, right? If we could just figure out a way to get all the right information out there, right, like I'm trying to do right now. <laughs> Right? Get all the right information out there. Get people to no longer be ignorant about who they're voting for and get people to understand the benefits of markets. Then we should be good, right? No? Voting should work. All right. No, it won't. And here's why. Okay. This is something that um, Condorcet, the Marquis de Condorcet, discovered in, in the 18th century, in the late 18th century. It turns out... Voting is a really, really poor way of aggregating people's preferences. Okay. So as some of you are economists, so you know that markets do that, right? They aggregate people's preferences. Voting is another way of aggregating people's preferences and kind of trying to figure out how, well, we could add up everybody's preferences and then get an outcome that everybody likes, right? That's the idea. And that's what we do when we vote, right? We vote between two options and decide which one we prefer. And then, well, that one we pick. Okay, so... What the Marquis de Condorcet found is that 
voting actually does a pretty poor job aggregating people's preferences. And sometimes it will come up with outcomes that aren't actually preferred by everybody necessarily first off. And that if we voted again, people may come up with a different decision. So we could get stuck in a cycle of voting. Okay? Voting is uh, subject to cycling is the idea. Okay, so let me try to illustrate this a little bit. Okay, so we have three groups. I'm going to ask three of you to vote and represent these three groups. Let's say you're one, you're two, you're three. Okay, group one, group two, group three. And I want you guys to raise your hands when I ask you what you want to vote for. Okay, so really high up so that everybody can see it so that it's really clear. Okay, all right. So now just to make sure that you understand, these are your preferences. Okay, so for group one right there, you prefer vanilla to chocolate to strawberry. Okay? One is your highest preference. Um, for group two, you like strawberry better than everything else. Okay, Kevin likes strawberry better than anything else. And Dan, are you, do you go by Dan? Yes. Okay. Dan likes chocolate better than anything else. So if I were to ask you, chocolate versus strawberry, what would you vote? Chocolate. Chocolate. Okay, right. All right, so let's have a vote. All right, let's start out by voting vanilla versus chocolate. Okay, so we're in a democracy. We're going to think about whether we want to have chocolate ice cream for dinner or vanilla. Okay, so let's see. Chocolate, who would like chocolate? Raise your hand. One, okay. Vanilla? Wait, no, you still have to vote. Between chocolate <laughs> and vanilla? <laughs> oh, um. You prefer vanilla, right? Okay, let's do it again. Vanilla, all right. Chocolate, one. Okay, very good. So we choose vanilla. Okay, so we're all going to have vanilla ice cream for dinner. Okay, but now you could say, all right, never mind, we never voted on strawberry, so let's make sure that we don't prefer strawberry to vanilla, right? We, because it might be that in our population right here, more people like strawberry than vanilla. So let's have another vote just to make sure that between the three, we actually pick the one that society prefers. Okay, so let's vote between strawberry and vanilla. Who would like strawberry? Two. All right, so you would like vanilla? Too bad for you. We're going to have strawberry ice cream for dinner. Right? Majority rule, democracy. We just picked strawberry. Very good. All right. We know strawberry is the most preferred choice for ice cream in our little sample society right here. Okay. That's what you think. Okay. Let me show you it's not true. Let's have a vote between chocolate and strawberry, right? We want to have we want to make sure that our voting process is actually right. If our voting process works, then we eliminated chocolate on the first vote, right? Chocolate was out because vanilla is preferred to chocolate. On the second vote, we voted between vanilla and strawberry, and so vanilla was out, strawberry is our preferred choice. So technically, our ranking of these choices should be, um, see, strawberry is preferred to vanilla, is, to, is preferred to chocolate. That should be our ranking, right? All right, so let's make sure that this is actually true. Let's vote between chocolate and strawberry. If the outcome of this first vote is right, then Strawberry should win. Okay, so let's see. Strawberry or chocolate? Raise your hand. Strawberry, raise your hand. One. Chocolate, raise your hand. Two. Oh my God. What just happened? How, how does this make any sense? Okay, let's see. What you just told me is that you prefer chocolate to strawberry. Like this. Did somebody vote, vote wrong or something? You guys did it right? Did you? Did you? Observe and see that they did it right. They did. Okay. So, what do we do? What do we do now? Chocolate or strawberry? Both. Yes. That would be nice. That would be nice. <laughs> Neapolitan. <laughs> Unfortunately, politics is really bad at coming up with multiple choices. Right? It's usually only either increased spending or decreased spending. Right? It's only either chocolate or strawberry, or yes to chocolate, no to chocolate in some cases even, right? So, so politics is really bad at making Neapolitans. Um, and it's really bad at deciding what kind of ice cream to have in the first place, right? Like we just saw. Chocolate should be last, but it turned out to be first. Okay, so we have a cycle here. Basically what that means is that no outcome in the political process, you should trust. It may not be what the majority actually wants, ever. And if we voted again, we might come up with a different result. Okay? So basically what Condorcet found is that voting is not a good way to aggregate people's preferences. At the end of the day, when we vote to aggregate people's preferences, 
we may come out with an intransitive preference ranking. This is what an intransitive preference ranking looks like, okay? Transitive preferences means that you are rational, you're a rational person, so you know you prefer strawberry to vanilla to chocolate all the time, okay? It would be irrational to say, all right, never mind, I'll do chocolate anyways, like we just found out for the group, okay? So voting's bad at aggregating people's preferences. We can, we can end up with a, with a cycle, okay? Now, what does that mean? What does that mean that we have a cycle? What does it do to our wealth? We're economists, right? We care about wealth. Okay, not, all, not everybody. What does it do to our wealth when we have intransitive preferences like that? It's wasted. Yeah, think about it like this, right? You start out, you have four bars of chocolate, chocolate ice cream, okay? Now, you prefer vanilla to chocolate, so you'll be willing to give up four chocolate for three vanilla, right? When, if you're trading with somebody. Okay, so if this were a market and you're actually going to the store, you start out with four chocolate, you give up four chocolate to get three vanilla, right? Okay, then you see somebody else has strawberry, and they're willing to give you two strawberry for three vanilla. And since you like two strawberry better than three vanilla, you're going to do that, right? All right, and then you walk across the first guy that you traded with. He has four chocolate, and he tells you, oh, you have strawberry. That's nice. I'll trade with you. I'll give you one chocolate for you, two strawberry. And you do it because, or you know, even if he gave you two, you do it because you like chocolate better than strawberry. Okay, so you started out with four chocolate. You end up with two chocolate. So you just get screwed. You just get screwed, right? If this were you in the marketplace, you would lose all of the time. People could take advantage of you like nobody's business, right? Now that's us as a collective group, though. That's what happens to us all of the time. We get screwed. We screw ourselves, in fact. Shouldn't use that word so much, should I? Okay. <laughs> all right, so <laughs> voting doesn't work for three different reasons. First of all, we're ignorant, so we can't actually check the politicians that we're supposed to be checking because we don't know who they are. Second of all, even if we were perfectly informed, we would still come up with bad policy choices because we're, we're irrational about what we believe about how the world works. Now, even if you assume we're perfectly rational and perfectly informed, you still have problems because you have this Condorcet's paradox. We can't come up with a transitive preference ranking as a society. Okay? Now, I should say, just to be fair, this doesn't necessarily happen always. It doesn't always happen. Okay? It's just in a world where people actually have their preferences exactly like this, and there are three groups of equal size right? that, that, that matter equally. Now, um, in the real world, that's not always the case, but it could be. Right? And if, if it could be, then, well, we want to make sure that we do something about that, because it screws us over if we, if we do end up with intransitive preferences. Okay? All right, so bad, right? Here you are, I believed all this time that checks and balances and voting could constrain your politicians, but really doesn't work. Isn't that kind of frustrating? Everybody looks like they're not surprised. So you knew this stuff already, right? You knew this stuff already. Okay. Now, <clears throat> so if we have this problem and voting doesn't work, checks and balances doesn't work, what is it that really drives the political process? What is it that really drives the political process? Well, this guy, Mansur Olson, yeah, that's right. He's the one that, that basically gave us an answer to this, a really good answer to this. Okay? At the end of the day, what really drives politics is this. That's right, polit is money. Okay? And specifically, it's interest groups. Okay? Because if you are an interest group that can manipulate what voting should actually be all about, then you can decide whether we should even vote between strawberry and chocolate at the end. Right? You can influence what our votes should be about, and if you can influence what our votes should be about in the first place, then you will influence the outcome, right? You can manipulate the agenda, essentially, okay? Now, what Mansur Olson said in his book, The Logic of Collective Action, is that the problem with this process of interest groups influencing the, pro the political process is, is that it's biased. It's biased in favor of small groups. Okay. Small groups have an easier time influencing the political process than large groups. Okay. Now, all right, here's why. Small groups have an easier time overcoming the free rider problem. All right, you already know what the free rider problem is, so I don't have to explain that anymore. But basically, when you are trying to form a group, right, when you're trying to form a group that represents your interests in Washington, D.C., 
then, well, the only way you can do that is if you have a lot of money and support from everybody that has similar interests. Right. So now if you have a small group of people that are like you, that all have the same interests, and you know them all, right? then you have an easy time going around and saying, hey, Dan, don't you want to go to DC with me and lobby for strawberry ice cream since we both like it so much? Right? Nobody else likes it, so let's just go and try to do this together because if we get strawberry ice cream to be the thing that we all have for dinner, then the two of us are going to be a lot better off. Right? So, and even if you say, no, I don't really care, then I could be like, but no, you're going to care. I'm going to make you care. Right? Social pressure, something else. Right? I'll make you conform to my interest. It is your interest, too, and I'm going to make you contribute to my cause somehow. Right? I'll use social pressure to, to make you contribute to my cause. Now, if it's a larger group of people that all share the same interest, this becomes a lot more difficult. Right? You can imagine that free riding is a lot more prevalent. And so to actually get the money together to go and get our interests represented in politics is going to be a lot more difficult. Okay? It's going to be a lot more difficult. So small groups have an advantage in the political process. And by small, I just mean groups that represent smaller shares of the population. Okay? Groups that represent a majority of the population have a really hard time forming because they have a harder time overcoming the free rider problem. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, it, it means we get stuff like this all of the time. Every, has anybody ever heard of the, the sugar quota and its effect? Raise your hand if you have. Okay, two, three, four, maybe five people. Okay, not very many. Now, let me tell you, it affects all of you equally badly equally badly. And it benefits people like that guy right there. He's a sugar farmer, I think. Looks like it anyways. He's pulling out a sugar beet, right? So <clears throat> Sugar Beet Farmers of America, the Association of Sugar Beet, sugar, or it's called the, the American Sugar Alliance, okay? So that's all of the sugar beet farmers in America, essentially, and the people that refine the sugar beets into actual sugar. They're a small group. Most of them know each other, not very many, okay? So they were able to get together, form their American Sugar Alliance, and go to D.C. and lobby for their cause. And what they did was they said, well, we think that um, sugar, there should be a quota on sugar imports. You should be, foreign sugar should not be allowed to come in at, at, its, at, at its regular price. In fact, foreign producers should be forced to limit the amount of sugar they import, okay? Because we don't really want to compete with them, first of all. And, and on top of that, if we were forced to compete with them, we would probably go out of business. That means small American farmers would go out of business. And we really don't want small American farmers to go out of business, right? We want them to stay in business. They're good. They make the country look nice, right? And we all used to be farmers, so we should be interested in those farmers surviving, right? No? You're all heartless. Sure, okay. <laughs> all right, so they are a small group. They all went to D.C. and lobbied, and they lobbied for protection of what they do, which is to farm beets and then make sugar out of that. Okay, now it turns out that th that's the least efficient way to make sugar. It's actually a lot more efficient to make sugar from sugar cane, and it's about half as expensive, too. Okay, so you see right here, this is the world price of sugar. Sugar in the world market is made from sugar cane, Okay, so it's really cheap. Okay. Sugar in the U.S. is made from sugar beet up there. Okay, a lot more expensive. And without protection, American sugar beet farmers and American sugar refiners would go out of business because they can't compete with world sugar producers. Okay, but they were effective at lobbying the government and instituting a sugar quota, which has made the price of sugar go up in the U.S. so that they could survive and continue to sell sugar. Now, what that's done, well, you don't really care that you're paying 26 cents for a pound of sugar instead of 13, right? Do you? Have you ever? You, well, obviously not because you've never worried about it, right? You didn't ever notice. I, I don't really notice either. Sugar is already cheap, right? But it's twice the price that it is in the rest of the world here. Now, households on average pay about $50 more a year for sugar. So you don't, it's, it's a lot of money, right? 50 bucks, you could do something nice with that something else nice with that, right? Um, but it's not that big a deal. That's why you don't know about it. Now, this has had huge implications for a lot of other sectors of the economy, though. Okay? And you probably know what they are. What has happened to sugar in the production of other products in the U.S.? 
syrup. Yeah, it's been replaced with corn syrup for a lot of things. So this country, right, original producer of Coca-Cola, only place in the world where Coke is not made with sugar because of this, okay? Lifesavers was very recently actually left the country, moved to Canada to make Lifesavers now, okay, because, well, too expensive here. You can't afford to put the sugar that you need in there because, well, they would make, the, you think sugar here would make the product so expensive that no one will buy it. So they moved to Canada. And this has happened over time to a lot of other industries, okay? So people that use sugar in the production of their goods left the country or replaced sugar with other substitutes that are cheaper. Okay, so a lot of things are made with corn syrup instead of sugar or the producers have left the country. Actually, in the, in the beginning, what they did is instead of leaving the country or using corn syrup, they started importing things that have a high sugar content and extracting the sugar. So people started importing pancake mix from Canada, extracting the sugar, and then using it in their production. That was cheaper than buying sugar here. Okay, so that's ridiculous, right? Sounds like stupid policy. It is stupid policy. But it can persist because there's a small group of people that are really, really interested in having it persist. They make a living off of it, right? And you guys are all ignorant about the policy because it affects you very little individually, right? 50 bucks, not a big deal. But, well, for the whole country, that's a lot of money. And the people that benefit are the people that are in the American Sugar Alliance, okay? So we have what we call concentrated benefits and diffused cost. This guy and all of us, we're the ones that lose, right, at the expense of the sugar farmers. Okay. Now, <clears throat> all right, one other problem, and this is a little disconnected now from the voting process, is um, bureaucracy. Okay, so public choice theory also has something to say about bureaucracies and how they work. Okay? All right, I'll let you laugh about the picture and then we can move on. <laughs> okay, all right, so this is maybe this is, uh, some evidence against my theory of using pictures. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So public choice theory also looked at um, bureaucracies and how they work. Okay, so bureaucracies are supposed to be the executors of policy choices that are made by the legislature, right? And we never really talk about whether or not they do a very good job, right? We just kind of assume that they do whatever they're supposed to be doing. Now, if we model them like we do politicians as rational self-interested people, rationally self-interested in maximizing their own benefit, then that's probably a little bit more realistic, okay? And um, public choice scholars have done that, and what they basically model bureaucracies as is as budget maximizing. Okay, so that means bureaucrats aren't interested in doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're interested in maximizing their budget and keeping their bureau alive, right? Keeping their jobs. Now, if you actually do a good job at what you're supposed to be doing, you're putting yourself out of a job eventually, right? As somebody who's in policy. If you figure out a way to keep people from using drugs, then you don't have to, well, use police force to keep them from doing it anymore, right? If you can actually convince people that it's bad to, to smoke pot, then, well, you don't have a job anymore, right? So, well, bureaucrats don't face the incentives that they should face to do the things that they're, that they're doing. Instead, they face the incentive to keep their jobs and maximize their budget, actually make the problem that they're fighting seem worse than it actually is so that they can increase their budget and spend more money. Okay, increase their budget and spend more money. That's the idea. And it turns out that's a pretty good prediction of what actually goes on in the world. Pretty good prediction of what actually goes on in the world. All right, now, all right, if this is an accurate representation of politics and it's really only all about exchanging money, putting money in some people's pockets and taking it out of the pockets of other people, if it's really all that corrupt, right, then what do we do? What, what can we do? Well, Buchanan and Tulloch, the two guys from the, from the first slide, actually tried to give us an answer in this book that they published in 1962, uh, The Calculus of Consent. They said, what we should do is const have constitutional reform. The political system, the way it is, doesn't work, and the reason why is, is because we have bad institutions. We have majority rule, but majority rule isn't necessarily the best way to make decisions in a democracy. For some issues, we should have more than a 50% majority requirement when they get passed. Because, well, if, if, say, the sugar lobby came and said, we want a sugar quota, and then, you know, 80% of the population would be required to actually pass that law, 
then maybe people would you know, get informed, figure out that it would be costly for them, for them to pass a sugar quota law, and then they wouldn't do it. So if we can increase the majority, the majority requirement for political decision making, then maybe we can get better results. Okay? So that's their suggestion. Um, and here are the graphs that they developed to show that. Basically, what we have is there are two types of costs that are associated with decision making. One is decision cost, which is just the cost of agreeing to something. And that cost increases as the number of voters that are required to agree increases. Okay, so as we go from uh, zero people having to agree to N, whatever the population is, the cost of, let me show you the previous graph, the cost of making a decision actually increases. This year's decision cost, okay, it increases very hard to see, but all right. And then the other cost of voting is external cost. That's right here. External cost is all of the stuff that we just talked about. So the cost of a decision that is imposed on other people that aren't part of the decision-making process. Okay, so all of us, we weren't part of the decision-making process when they decided to have a sugar quota, but we're all affected by it. Okay, so if we could just be part of the decision-making process, then that cost would probably be lower, right? So right here, as we increase the number of people that are supposed to be part of the decision-making process, external cost goes down. Now that's assuming that people are informed, right? That's assuming that people are informed. So if you put those two together for a total cost of voting graph or a total cost of having a certain majority requirement, then you can see that the cost is minimized right here, R. Okay? Now what Buchanan and Tulloch said is that R isn't necessarily 50%. It's not necessarily 50%. It totally depends. And if the external cost of making a decision is really, really high, then you move the R over further to this side. Right? Well, we know that the external cost of the political process is really, really high. There are lots of special interest groups that get lots of special favors. And that's really costly for taxpayers, right? So that means that the R is probably far further over to the right than we think. And 50% majority is a bad rule. It should be different. The closer we get to unanimity, the lower the external cost. The greater the decision cost, though, so that might be a problem. But in the age of the internet, right, it should be pretty cheap to get people to vote. So the decision cost has been greatly reduced. External cost is still really high. That means we should get greater majority requirements. Okay? All right, so that's one proposal for a solution to all these problems. Now you could say, well, this still comes with the assumption of having rational or, well, rationally informed voters, right, which we don't have. Still comes with the assumption that we don't have biases. So it doesn't really solve the problem perfectly either. Don't know what would be a good solution. Any ideas? How can we reform the political process to make it work, to actually have checks? Maybe that's something you want to think about during our breakout groups. Okay, thank you. Why do governments create monopolies when they prove to be inefficient? You mean like? Uh, hmm? Isn't that like asking why are people dumb? Well, they're not dumb. They're self-interested. Uh, so, like, like, what kind of example of a monopoly? What are you thinking about? We're talking like cable, water. Okay. Well, so because of the because of the way the political process works, right? Special interests have more power. Or small interest groups have more power than large interests represented in in the population, and so the cable companies have an interest in having a monopoly. They have access, more access than anybody else, so that's why, essentially, right? Does that make sense? Does that yeah. answer the question? Yeah. Mostly? <clears throat> well, maybe you can tell me later or something. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just the differential access, right? It's not. Everybody knows monopolies are bad, and everybody sees that state-imposed monopolies are bad, especially for, even, even if the industry is, is technically considered a, um, a natural monopoly, we can sometimes imagine ways of doing it more efficiently, right? Um, but it's basically just a, the, because of the differential access to the politicians that we get these bad policies. Alternatives to voting. Markets are always good alternatives to voting. <laughs> Markets always are good alternatives to voting for sure, I think. Um, turns out that most of the things that we thought were public goods aren't really public goods, right? And we no longer need 
um, a monopoly phone company, um, right? We got rid of the network problem there, so we can now have competing cell phone providers. Um, and so we don't need to have that provided by um, by the federal government, and so, or at least regulated by the federal government. And so, yeah, markets are the, the best alternative, I think. Um, dictatorships. Um, some people say that sometimes uh, a benevolent dictator would be better than a democracy. Um, that's not necessarily true. It actually turns out that empirically, um, uh, dictatorships or, or systems that are authoritarian like that um, tend to, it's, it's true, sometimes they do better, right? So Singapore is very authoritarian, but they have, a, they do very well economically, right? Um, now, that's not always the case, and in fact, it just turns out that there's a lot more um, volatility in the outcomes for authoritarian regimes. So you have really, really bad ones, and you have some good ones, but that doesn't mean that they always do well, okay? It's kind of a random draw. You, you could end up like North Korea, <laughs> right? That's the downside, so I don't think that we want to try that. Um, <clears throat> how is financial involvement in politics de detrimental to the political process itself? Um, I don't think it's the financial involvement that's the problem. I think it's the, um, I think it's the, the bias in the distribution of how um, access works. So if I, you know, uh, if I could influence the political process by spending some of my money, then sometimes I might do that, right? Um, but I can't because I don't have a lobbying group in D.C. that allows me to do that, right? So there's high cost of setting up access, first of all. Um, and to do it, you have to have a group of like-minded individuals, right? And so it doesn't work if you're interested in something that a lot of people are interested in, but just a little bit, right? All of us are willing to spend 50 bucks to get rid of the sugar quota, but not more, probably. So, well, if you can figure out a way to get everybody to spend those 50 bucks and actually do something about the sugar quota, then maybe we could get rid of it, right? But you can't get people to do it because, well, free rider problem. Plus, how do I know that you're not just going to go and try to do something else? I have no way of checking that, right? If you were to try to represent me. Is there something over there, too? No. No, There's three total? Okay, okay, cool. All right, could private security firms help in solving some problems public policy attempts to tackle? Um, like what? For example, what is the problem that the private, the private security firm is trying to solve that public policy solves right now? Who asked the question? Nobody? Wait, were you asking the protection question? Yeah. Uh, like uh, rational ignorance and things like that. If you're buying directly your, your protection agency rather than building oh. on something, yeah. that help kind of alleviate some of that rational ignorance? Like I'm buying a car. So yeah. If I'm buying a car, I'm going to do a lot of research. Right. I'm going to be very well informed and rational about it. Yep. Yeah, so not just private security firms, but any, any kind of private solution would make you actually care a little bit more, right? You care about your cable bill probably more than you do about, um, I don't know, the highway fund, the National Highway, the highway Trust Fund, right? Um, and that's not because it doesn't affect your life any less or any more, but you just don't have any influence over it, right? Your cable bill, if there's something wrong with it, you call your cable provider and make them fix it, hopefully. Now, that's actually a bad example because they kind of have a regional monopoly too, so you have less influence, but um, maybe your cell phone bill, right, would work as an example. So yeah, any kind of private solution, I think, would make it so that people have more of a vested interest. If you can see the cost of something directly and the benefits, and you can compare it to the benefits that you receive, then that works, right? So in politics, the, the cost and the benefits are disconnected, right? We pay taxes, but we don't know exactly where they go, right? You don't know exactly how much of your tax money is spent on each separate product plus or that the government produces, right? Plus. Even if you do, then, well, you have a hard time influencing that. You can't call up and say, hey, you just built this road in my neighborhood, and it is kind of a crappy road. Can you come back and fix it? I paid for that, right? There's no way to do that directly anyways. 
Now there are some, so um, James Buchanan was actually uh, was influenced um, by uh, Knut Wicksell, who's a Swedish economist, and he actually uh, proposed um, a system where you would have um, taxes associated directly with whatever they're spent on, so that anytime you vote on anything, you get, you know, say it, it, it tells you you're voting for a new highway bill and it's going to cost you this much exactly and you're going to get this benefit. Okay, so if we can direct more uh, or link more directly the, the benefits, the outcomes that we're supposed to be getting to the cost and actually tell everybody if you vote yes, this is going to be the cost of you voting yes, then people could make more rational decisions, right? Because they would actually know how much it would be to choose one over the other. Um, but that also requires that every choice is basically um, open to everybody to vote on, right? And um, even in that case, you can still get special interests dominating um, unless you have unanimity, a unanimity requirement, right? So Excel's plan is unanimity and direct link between taxation and um, whatever you vote on. That would work probably a lot better, but it'd be very hard to do. Right? Very hard to do. And we would do a lot less. Right? We'd probably do a lot less, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, okay, would a weaker federal state, or a federal or a stronger state government increase policy efficiency? Okay, so technically, there's a case for federalism that just is basically um, people vote with their feet, right? If a state chooses to implement bad policies, people can move to another state and um, the outflow of people means lower tax revenue for the state, so as a state you can only be successful if you can actually have good policy, attract people, have them move to you, right? Um, so there's competition between the states as long as people can move freely across borders, and in that case, yes, a federal system would be better than, uh, sorry, a, uh, yeah, a federated system would be better than a centralized system, right? So stronger state government should increase policy efficiency technically. Now, not perfectly because people don't, always move just because there's bad policy in the place that they live, right? They do at the margin, but not perfectly, right? There are other reasons that keep people in certain places. So I know some of you want to stay in Denver, right? Can I just like a follow-up for that? What if states have a really big incentive to collude with one another? Yeah. Because of that? Yeah, they would. And they could make it harder for people to move, too, right? And then that wouldn't work very well. So. That only works if there's really free movement of people, and you can't guarantee that if you have a strong, strong state, right? Um, yeah, so I think the answer is yes. Um, and then in the last question, should politicians be made to bear the wealth effects of their policy decisions? Um, like, should they be the ones that pay for the sugar quota? Yeah, that'd be awesome, huh? <laughs> then they wouldn't do it, yeah. Anything that improves the incentives for the people in, that are in the structure, right? So anything that makes it more costly for politicians to make bad decisions, anything that makes it more beneficial for voters to have good information, anything like that would actually improve the system, right? So you can come up with a ton of different ideas that would improve the incentive structure as it currently exists. And having politicians bear some more of the cost would definitely be one way, I think. Now, how do we do that? I'm not sure, right? But yeah, any other questions? I have a question. Yeah. So like I love talking about making think market decisions instead of like policy mm -hmm. descriptions, whatever. Like, how can you work a market with, or give examples of a market where it's not money produced? Does that make any sense? What does a market for policy decisions look like? Well, it would just look like a market. You can well, I, I guess, uh, competition between different products is essentially what you need, right? Co competition between different sol solutions and letting people pick one or the other. So you can't have a monopoly. I don't know if that answers the question. If you, you said, uh, I don't know if this is the same question, similar, I guess, but you said a uh, better alternative to voting is the market. Yeah. The market process, yeah. So it well, I talked about markets yesterday, right? So markets work because they efficient, efficiently allocate resources. As long as there's competition, right, between producers, and as long as there are enough enough consumers, and and as long as consumers can choose between different producers, then you actually get good outcomes, 
Now, Can that also only work if there were a, a lot of repeated transactions? No, not necessarily. It, it, you don't have to have repeated transactions. You just have to have reputation, right? So even, even if I make a, a choice uh, only once in my life, right, or to choose to buy something only once in my life, I will rely on other people's information to make that choice, right? So I'll ask my friends. That's what I meant, but the, the other information has to be there. So if we're going to build our first ever nuclear reactor, um, we've never built one before. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, we could look at things, people who have built other things before, but we would have a, a, a real information problem there, I think. Because of the, because it's a different type of product? Yeah, but markets produce new products all the time, right? Now you could say that's a more well, dangerous product to it, it's produce. It's dangerous. It's very big. It's very expensive. <laughs> we might only ever need one or two. Uh, how do I have a market for a product for a thing that I only need one of? Maybe there wouldn't be nuclear reactors without a government. Maybe there wouldn't be. And that wouldn't necessarily be such a bad thing, would it? Or there would be smaller ones, right? There would be some other solution. Something else. Okay. Yeah. Essentially, buying different policies that they live by, and everybody would buy different policies. Oh, I mean, you, yeah, everybody just would p pick their rule structure that they want to subscribe to, right? We do that with um, neighborhood associations, so right? That's true, but still, you would have to force ideas on people who don't want to live by those ideas. No, people can move somewhere else if yeah, they don't that, want that's to. True. There's freedom. Yeah, you have to have freedom of movement. Without freedom of movement, you can't get the choice, but right? Is often costly. Moving is costly, that's true. But living in a bad political system is even more costly. <laughs> but in markets, too, there aren't necessarily policies that don't think in the way that you talk about policies. Because policies are like top-down, this is the policy of the United States. In markets, there's no like this overriding policy that everybody lives by. Well, people would... Yeah, people would choose rule structures, though, that they wanted to adhere, adhere to, right? So markets are, are always, always operate in a context of rules, right? So contract law, um, you know, is, is important for markets to work. And, and so you can have different systems of, of contract law, right? I mean, that exists in the world even today. And um, you would, you'd basically have to subscribe to one specific one. Now, does it mean that you have to have, you know, you, you live in a certain HOA and that HOA takes care of all of your legal uh, needs? Not necessarily, right? You could subscribe to different legal providers for different purposes, right? You could imagine that being the case. Um, but basically, yeah, you would have, you'd have a choice between different, different goods, essentially. What do you mean? Like, why would there be pirates? Because they would just be able to take what they want. They have regulations, and they, they're not just able to do whatever they want. But producers aren't able to do whatever they want, are they? If they have a good enough lobbyist, they are. If they are, yeah, that's right. If they have a good enough lobbyist. All right, so remove the government. No need for a lobby, lobbyist anymore, right? Then I have a toxic soda that I'm trying to give everybody. And if it wasn't regulated, and everybody's drinking my toxic soda. What happens if you ha what happens if you sell a toxic soda? You won't have to be touched the mercy for sure. Yeah, you definitely you're <laughs> so done with, right? The public sector, how they know it's toxic. Well, somebody dies, right? Yeah, yeah. And that information is communicated, right? So, yes, you're right. So, there would be there we would we would live in a world where there would be, um, you, would, you would have to rely on other sources of information, right? Right now we go to the grocery store and we buy food and we rely on it being good food because we trust the FDA, right? You'd have to trust somebody else. You'd trust like, um, you know how the kosher symbol, uh, there's a kosher symbol that's on a lot of goods. That's actually a private solution to, to an informational problem with, with food, 